At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Joining us today to recap the big events of this busy cyber year and what we should expect in the year ahead are retired United States Navy Admiral Mike Rogers, the former commander of the National Security Agency, or I should say the former director of the National Security Agency and the commander of the U.S. Cyber Command. He is now a cyber consultant and served serves as the chairman of the advisory board of cybersecurity firm Clarity. Um, Mike, thanks very much for joining us. And Dr. Jim Lewis, the director of the strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and uh, International Studies. Guys, thanks very much for joining us uh, today uh, for a look uh, back at what was a very busy year, uh, obviously, and especially as we get to the uh, the last couple of days before Christmas. I know how busy each of you are. Thanks, Vago. Looking forward to our conversation. Thanks, Vago. Glad to be here. Uh, an absolute pleasure. And a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman, of course, sponsors our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Mike, uh, let me start with you. Um, you know, I want to get uh, both of your senses on sort of the big cyber stories of the year. Uh, stuff in 2021 that's going to be shaping 2022. But I wanted to start with the Log4j uh, vulnerability, right? I mean, this uh, caught people by surprise. It's stunning to me how often we get caught by surprise on stuff like this and how often, you know, sort of, you know, you know, Minecraft is the one who says, hey, by the way, I, you know, there, there's a problem with this software uh, that could then constitute a vulnerability and be a national security vulnerability. Obviously, that's a Java uh, library uh, code um, that uh, appears to be compromised. Where are we on mitigation, right? We've heard from John uh, Cofrancesco of Fortress on this. We heard from Monty Montgomery of the Cyber Solarium Commission. And we've, we've also heard from Data Clothier uh, from Northrop Grumman on, on, on the, the magnitude and the challenges associated with this. How big of a problem is it? And do we have our arms wrapped around it? Or are we going to be paying the price for this throughout 2022? So it's a significant issue because this software coding segment is widely deployed. And quite frankly, it's an example of software is actually composed of various components, some of which are used interchangeably for very simple functions with broad application as a way to save development time. So you find these software segments of code, so to speak, that have been developed for very common functionality. They're widely used and integrated into other programs. So I think most organizations right now are trying to answer two fundamental questions about Log4j. Number one, do we actually have that software segment embedded within software within our organization? And then the second question gets to be, okay, has it been exploited? So we both have to fix the vulnerability. Um, and then we also got to figure out, hey, was it used? And if so, what are the implications for us? And the reality is most of, we're finding out most organizations just don't have a good sense 
for the components of software they're using. They, they just don't, in my opinion. Um, and, and obviously, right, that's one of the reasons why an SBOM, right, a, a software bill of origin is so very important. Uh, and, um, you know, why the reporting requirements, and we'll get to that uh, in, a, in, a, in a minute, right? I mean, why it's important to report vulnerabilities and breaches, uh, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, Jim, you know, you've been studying this field for a long time. I mean, it's, it's stunning to me, right? I mean, what Mike said was terrific terrifically obvious, right? I mean, software has components in it as well. Uh, and folks go to open source libraries, they grab the code. Our adversaries uh, and bad actors know that the better they engineer code, the more likely it is that folks at two o'clock in the morning who need a, <laughs> need a nice, elegant piece of code may actually adopt this and not pay attention to the fact it has Cyrillic or Chinese characters associated with it on these pages, right? W what does this tell us you know, like, what do we need to be doing to get better at this and, and better identify these vulnerabilities before somebody either in China goes, hey, did you guys notice there's a problem with this? Or, you know, whether whether it's a, a, a gamer who goes, holy cow, we just spotted a problem with this and everybody goes, oh, my God, we, we have a bigger problem now. This software is more than 20 years old. I mean, it's an old model for software development. You had a group of uh, uh, coders. Uh, create open source software in the Apache Foundation. We've got this blend of different sources of proprietary software, open source software melded together. And these, these things have millions of lines of code that are hard to manage. So it's gonna take time to sort through the supply of software. SBOM is a good idea. It'll start getting us there, but look, this the legacy systems alone are always gonna have these vulnerabilities pop up. So. When you've got this blend of different sources, different code, uh, in a way that's very difficult to manage, you're just going to see problems like this. Uh, you know, it's um, when they started drafting, when they started coding uh, <laughs> this particular piece of code, it was at the dawn of the internet. So it, you know, again, like you were saying, is it a big surprise that antiques have vulnerabilities? Uh, it'll take a while for us to change this. <laughs> um, uh, that's uh, both very funny and terrifying all at the same time, Jim. Um, Mike, do we, or, or is the software we're developing any better or are these um, compromised bits of code just making it into new software and we're just putting a new serial number on it and calling it brand new, uh, right? I mean, is it, is, it a, is it a Studebaker under that shiny Prius exterior, not to mix my metaphors or... Jack, well, one of the reasons clearly why Log4j's impact is so significant is because we just take components, and as Jim highlighted, look, this is an old component by cyber standards, but its functionality had always been high, and people are always interested in maximizing efficiency, so hey, why write, rewrite basic functionality that's been down, that's been in place, that has been widely deployed, Um I, I think, you know, when we start to talk a little bit about implications for 2022, I think rethinking a little bit about our software ecosystem is going to be an important component of the way ahead, so to speak, in cybersecurity. Um, uh, excellent uh, segue, uh, Mike. Uh, Jim, um, what were the big stories of 2021 for you, right? I mean, we had some very prominent ransomware attacks. Americans' food supply was interrupted. State and local governments, uh, you know, lost data or, or had it hijacked. We, we had the colonial pipeline issue. Uh, you know, we ended last year, uh, you know, or, or we're grappling uh, over the year with solar winds uh, and, um, you know, other 
penetrations, right? I mean, what were the big stories in your mind, the most needle moving stories that we're, you know, that, that originated in this year that we're going to be grappling with in 2022 and beyond? So you have developments both internationally and domestically. Domestically, I'd look at the executive order, the May executive order, and then the national security memorandum that followed it. And some of the actions that's produced at, at CISA and DHS. Internationally, you have the agreement in the UN on norms for responsible state behavior. So those are the, the two developments, the EO and the open-ended working group norms, OEWG, that are gonna shape the future. Uh, you know, with all these things, there is an immediate improvement. Uh, the EO will take some time to play out. It's got a host of deadlines. The OEWG, we've discovered, you know, we have agreement on among all the countries in the world on what a responsible actor is in cyberspace. And now the question is, okay, what do we do when somebody doesn't pay attention to the rules? So I think those are going to be the shaping issues is how do we, to the, the point we were making earlier, the executive order seeks to force people to secure more codely if they want to sell to the federal government. Um, how does that work? Uh, how much time will it take? And then on the international scale, how do we in the countries that think like us uh, create accountability in cyberspace? And that's a risky one because you may have to do something to Russia and China to get them to sit up and pay notice. Right now, they don't take us seriously. So those um, are the things that I'm looking at the most. I, and I, I should have noted, right, I mean, that the executive order um, and and the, the focus the administration has brought um, certainly has been very welcome. Mike, from from your standpoint, what were uh, what were both the big, big stories and, and the big needle movers for you and the things that were important that maybe people didn't focus on maybe as closely as they should have? Yeah, Start so anywhere I'm, you want on that one. Sure, I'm going to turn the question a little bit. I, I, here's a handful of takeaways for me from 2021 that I think are going to be significant in terms of shaping the environment in cybersecurity for 2022 and go to, hey, what are some of the things we got to address? So the first is, it's interesting to me that in 2021, the single biggest attacks or penetration, so to speak, were where the adversary used the fundamental structure of the internet and the World Wide Web against itself. Supply chain, in, in the case of solar winds, and on the software side as well, Log4j. I mean, think about it. In each case, the adversary used the fact that we, in the case of solar winds, hey, we created a construct where every user in the world has to go to another software source, has to go to an external party and download. And we always assume, hey, as long as the connection is secure, as long as the entity that I'm linked up with seems to be exactly what I think it is, then by definition, whatever I extract, whatever I download to use to upload my own security and functionality is must be okay. Well, that got shown not to be the case. So supply chain's interesting to me. And then the log4j. So we're using the fact that much, in this case, much of our software is, is built around code sequences that are very old and just haven't gotten a lot of attention from a security perspective. They've worked fine from a functionality standpoint for a long time. So we just keep reusing them. So that would be number one. Number two, it's interesting to me that again, in 2021, the commercial sector, not the government, remained the biggest identifier of vulnerability. Solar winds, log4j as examples, 
all picked up and first identified by the commercial world, not by the government's efforts. Um, number three, hey, on the positive side, we, we saw some efforts by the government, FBI and other entities, for example, to forestall the actual movement of cryptocurrency once ransom has been paid. I think that's a, a positive development. Um, I'm not quite as enthusiastic about the executive order because I'm struck by, so all we have done is mandate requirements of those who sell to the government. Guys, that is such a small percentage of the total economic activity out there. I, I remain very perplexed as to why we aren't doing more to address more broadly from a legal and a regulatory standpoint, what we're doing and why we continue to focus on what will make changes within the government or those who do business within the government. It's not that those are bad, but I'm going, guys, that is such a small slice of the total economic activity and the total vulnerability that's out there. And then lastly, and this is really from Colonial Pipeline, it, it, I still find it very frustrating that the level of real-time coordination is not where it should be. I mean, literally a pipeline, a petroleum or energy distribution system that moves 45% of the gasoline products on the most densely portioned, pop, the most densely populated portion of our nation between the Gulf and up to the, you know, to the New York City area. A week into that, you still had CISA and DHS going, Colonial Pipeline really hasn't told us yet exactly how this happened, what happened. We're still waiting. I just, I'm like, I, guys, we cannot work like this. If even uh, critical infrastructure, we can't get timely information flow between the private sector and the government, we're never going to get ahead of these adversaries. Um, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I want to get to uh, the legislation that uh, both uh, Rick, Rick Scott and uh, Mitch McConnell uh, derailed. Um, uh, Jim, anything anything you want to add to that? Or, or maybe smaller stories that people didn't pay as much attention to. And, and Mike, want to get your sense uh, as well, right? I mean, every once in a while, there's something very big that's happening that people aren't paying attention to. Uh, and it's only later that people go, oh, my God, this is a big deal. And guys like you go, well, yeah, <laughs> we were surprised it didn't become a bigger deal sooner, right? What were, what were some of the needle moving things that didn't get as much attention as they should have in 2021? You know, I'd just add that we had the Minister for Home Affairs from Australia uh, in, I think it was last week, Karen uh, Andrews. And it was really irritating because the Australians, they have mandatory reporting for incidents, cyber incidents against critical infrastructure. Uh, so I see this all the time. I'm, I'm sure Mike does too. We have a great idea and then it takes us 17 years to implement it. In the meantime, the rest of the world moves out. <laughs> so our idea, we're behind the curve. That's really frustrating. And we have to figure out, I will say that it appears to me, and you guys can disagree, that cybersecurity is one of the few issues where there's still largely bipartisan consensus. Uh, it, it, there were a lot of bills this year, over, over 150 different bills from House and Senate. Uh, almost none of them made it to the finish line, but the level of attention and the consensus that we need to do something um, is encouraging. Now we actually have to do something which is discouraging. Yeah, I, I would agree, Jim. The, um, you know, the frustrating thing to me is why aren't we taking advantage of this broad consensus that we've got to do something and we've got to do something different? I mean, every, I hear lots of people talking, but nobody seems to be able to, or is actually willing 
to come up with different frameworks. And I, and I would start with the basics to your point. It still floors me. We do not mandate disclosure of cyber penetration. Now you can start small. Hey, if it's against critical infrastructure, it doesn't have to be every instance, but why are we not starting down this road? You, you can't work a problem set in which you have a low level of knowledge of what is actually happening every day out there. And Vago, to your question in terms of what didn't get enough, and Jim's mentioned it, I think the norms thing could be pretty big and you just don't hear many people talking about it, to be honest. I think of how long we've been working on that and the fact that we actually managed to get a broad consensus within the UN framework. I'm going, hey, that could be a real positive. Now, the challenge is always in the, it's great to declare norms or red lines, but then it's what you do when someone actually violates a norm or crosses a red line. And that has actually been a strength for us or for others over time. Uh, as you said, Mike, um, the you know astonishing that Colonial Pipeline was more sort of interested in either keeping this quiet or keeping authorities out or mitigate the magnitude of the, of the problem, right? And that's one of the reasons why folks have been pushing, the Solarium Commission's been pushing, but a lot of folks have been discussing this notion of reporting, reported to the Department of Homeland Security, reported to uh, the National Security Agency so that we can at least you know, as soon as you discover something, you have 24 hours to let us know. And so that we can help you mitigate this problem, understanding that our entire infrastructure is interconnected, that actually a small mom and pop company could have a very significant piece of national security information that a nation state actor would want to compromise, right? Or use as a backdoor, right? So there's no such thing you can't build to the lesser common denominator here, right? What's it going to take to actually move the needle on the remaining bits of cyber legislation, even though we made an enormous amount of progress this year? We still have important members of Congress saying the same thing that people were telling me literally, guys, 20 years ago, which is, well, you know, we don't want nanny state and we're just going to leave this to companies to do. And, you know, some companies companies tend to find this religion, whether they're banks or anybody else, only after they're penetrated. And even then, it's sort of like, well, I'll do a little bit, but not enough, right? I mean, so what 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 has to happen to move the, the legislative needle from the, and I'd like both of your senses on this. The, the short answer is, I don't know. I've been asking myself this literally for the last 20 years. How bad does it have to get? I can't figure out if that criteria is some sort of monetary damage Hey, it, you know, it, it cost billions of dollars to, to repair or billions of dollars in ransomware are, are paid out as a result of something. I never could figure out if it's, well, does it have to take a loss of life or injury? Because we knock on wood so far. Arguably, we haven't crossed that threshold in terms of a cyber action leading to death or um, significant injury. I, I flat out just don't know. It perplexes me. Jim? Yeah, it's it's been a problem for a while. I mean, look, there has been progress. So uh, at the end of the Bush administration, uh, the Department of Commerce was hacked. And the way they found out about it was they read it a couple days later in the Washington Post. So we, we you know, we're better than we used to be. Maybe we're not where we need to be. And the, there's been slow progress. Every year we got a little better. Usually in democracies, though, you need a crisis. Uh, that's unfortunate. And I hope we can avoid it. But um, one of the things that bothered me the most about Colonial Pipelines was that it was a good textbook for our opponents on how to create political disruption. So let's say 
let's say you're like Botswana or some country like that, and you want to invade Taiwan, and you want to tie the Americans in knots for a few days while you do that, buy yourself a little time. Uh, Colonial Pipeline was the blueprint for how to do that. So um, if we don't get this under control and we're making progress, but not enough, um, I think we'll end up with some kind of crisis. And that's unfortunate, but uh, I, with luck, now on the bright side, um, this is in some ways one of the best cyber teams we've ever had. In part, they're all graduates of your former institution, Mike. So we have a very good team across the agencies in the Biden administration. And that gives me a little hope. That and the consensus on the Hill, if we can figure out some way to operationalize it, maybe we can avoid the crisis. Mike? Yeah, it's only two things. Uh, my first would be, what? how many more crises do we need? <laughs> We're not hurting for crises in cyber. We're not hurting for actions that have global impact. We're not hurting for events that have had significant impacts economically. We're not hurting for events that have led to significant loss of functionality, even if it was for a relatively short period of time, some number of days or weeks. Um, so I don't know about that. Now, I, I do agree that there's great people. And I, I, if I'm honest, I, I do take a little pride in the fact that, hey, when this team came in, you know, they elected to go um, to, to some of the organizations I was a part of to build out their team. It's great to see some of my teammates continuing to serve and do great things for the nation. Um, and I'm very grateful for their willingness to take on these jobs, whether it's Jen Easterly or Ann Newberger or Chris Inglis. I, I will say I am a little disappointed. I don't see a willingness to expend political capital to make this work. I mean, as much as I like the executive order, I'm going, so you wrote an order that only applied to yourself. That's not a lot of political capital here, guys, to really make this work. We've just got you know, to be willing to drive things. And the administration's got to be, in this structure of government, the executive branch has a huge role here to play rather than just waiting for the legislative branch to come to some form of consensus. I think events of the last few years have shown if that's your strategy, you got a long time to wait before it, if ever, works. Uh, so what do you um, guys want to see from the administration in the coming year, right? And, um, and, and how do you convince members of Congress, right? I mean, this was Rick Scott and, and uh, Mitch McConnell uh, who, who moved to, you know, strip uh, the cyber reporting legislation out. Um, there is a sense that it might happen in, in standalone, but, but ultimately people have a tendency of forgetting and everybody should know better at this point, right? Um, you, you should, you should, you should understand that you may think you're helping a constituent by getting them off some hook, uh, that, that is, is, is just not good for the, for the broader body politic, right? Jim, start us off. What is the, this great administration, right? With talented people need to be doing differently? Because I think Mike made a great point. The question is, do you want to burn the capital to move the needle as far as you need to move that needle, right? It's not just about good people. It's about actually driving better outcomes. So what are what are the things they've got to do in 2022 from your standpoint? So I, I talked to the administration folks about the executive order. And one reason they settled on uh, a federal acquisitions mandate is they don't have the authority to do anything else. And Congress isn't willing to give them the authority. And actually, we talked about the 2012 bill, the Rockefeller bill that Susan Collins worked on. I think she's the last person there. It's McC Collins, McCain, Lieberman, Rockefeller. Um, 
Congress has to give them the authority to do more things. We need to identify those things. And that gets us back to the question of what should be mandatory. One space I'd watch is uh, authentication of identity. I know there's an interest in doing something. I told uh, some of our colleagues that at the NSC that authentication and identity were the third rail of cybersecurity. I'd be very careful of touching it. Again, the Australians are ahead of us. It's so irritating, but we need to think about how do you get Congress to give the government the authority it needs to start requiring best practices, cyber hygiene um, in cyberspace, not Uber regulation. This is not European style regulation, but for God's sake, there's a lot more we can do. And, and that's where Congress needs to be persuaded that this is more important. Uh, they're getting there, but not quick enough. Mike? So I, I guess my thoughts would be, number one, I'd like to see some sort of minimum reporting requirement. And again, we could start small, pick specific segments within the private sector. I would tie it to critical infrastructure. The government's identified already 17 specific components within the private sector that constitute, quote, critical infrastructure. I would do that. The second thing is, I, I often hear us talking about what the government should mandate. I sure would love to see the government focusing a little bit more on, so guys, how do we incentivize the outcomes that we want to see? Rather than imposing them, I wonder, would we more, be more effective given the, the structure of our government, given our societal construct? Would, be, would we be a little bit more effective in achieving outcomes if we spent more time focused on how we incentivize, use the authority of the government? It can be taxation, uh, it can be a lot of different policies the government can create that actually provide benefit or incentives to the private sector to increase their level of cybersecurity investment, to increase their level of cybersecurity interaction with each other and with the government. I, I just think there's a lot of activity there that we don't tend to spend much time really focused on. How much of this is carrot and how much of this is thick? Hey, no, I was going to say we had a whole conversation uh, and got to the end without using the word deterrence. Boy, if you if you think deterrence is working now, I have some real estate in New Jersey you might be interested in. So, you know, how we change our opponents thinking about the fact that America appears to be an unlocked store as far as they're concerned. I don't know if that qual falls under deterrence, maybe, but uh, that's going to be one of the big challenges. And part of it is making for harder targets. Uh, boy, if you think identity is the third rail, um, tax policy makes identity look easy. Um, well, I mean, you raised deterrence, so let me give you a bite at that apple and, and, then, and then go to Mike, right? Um, you're the one who mentioned that the, the fact that our adversaries are not being particularly deterred by anything we're doing, uh, right? I mean, the president has had these conversations directly, whether it's with Xi or whether it's with Putin. Um, and, and ultimately, right, I mean, this is an issue you and I have discussed for many years, uh, as you and I have, have, Mike. What are the things the administration needs to do in the next year to clearly telegraph to adversaries, but also to reassure friends and allies that we're serious about this, that this is a domain and it is a domain that is, you know, your, your uh, note, Jim, uh, you know, I mean, you know, obviously that is something that's in the Chinese order of battle, cause confusion in the United States, delay U.S. forces from being able to respond. If I was China, I'd try to turn off, you know, do all a manner of these sorts of things uh, you know, in the middle of a crisis and it completely distracts us. And then they do do a Taiwan or something else or, or whether it's Russia, right? How, what do we have to change? And what do we have to change in the coming 12 months from your standpoint? 
I'll just say quickly, we need to pull together a group of allies and partners to develop collective responses that impose costs on Russia and China. And that sounds a little scary. It is a little scary, but I mean, the alternative is to just sit back and watch. But the key for us and one advantage we have is we have allies, they don't, right? And so if we can pull the allies together, it won't be NATO, uh, but it'll be something that might be a little looser, a little more flexible to start pushing back on these activities. I think that's what we're gonna have to do. And I'm pretty sure the administration knows that's what we're gonna have to do as well. Mike? Um, b- bottom line, less talk and more action. You know, my frustration is we talk a great game, but we seldom follow through with concrete action. It's action that really deters. It, it's not verbiage. <laughs> it's not sentiment. Uh, and, 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 what are, and what are the kinds of specific actions we have to take, right? I mean, one of the things which I keenly understand is that whenever we have revealed capability, once upon a time, the revelation of that capability sort of extended deterrence. But now we're finding that every time we reveal capability to Russia and China, they very, very quickly develop countermeasures or their own capability, or in some cases, improve uh, their their capabilities. What what are the kinds of actions we need to be taking, right? So I'll be honest, capabilities wasn't the first thought that came to my mind. So I, like Jim, I agree there's a big international aspect on this. So actions I'd be looking for that are concrete. Show me that you can actually extradite and arrest individuals. Show me that you can actually decapacitate criminal groups. Show me that you can actually gain international legal frameworks that actually put teeth into the things we talk about. Those are the things I just scratched my head going, we talk about this stuff, but we seldom actually do much. And I, unless we change that, I don't see us deterring or changing the Russian or the Chinese behavior in this regard. I think their view remains the risk is very reasonable. And in fact, I can continue to escalate and pay little real meaningful price other than to be publicly castigated. But I think their view is, look, the the democratic societies of the world, the U.S., they're always castigating us verbally. Hey, this isn't anything new. I cannot let you guys go without mentioning the word CMMC or or the initial CMMC for cybersecurity model uh, maturity model certification. Um, what's next for CMMC? Is it alive and well? Is it dead? Where are we on it? Because it went from the hot topic with companies building their strategic build, business plans around it. And now it, we seem to, to have stalled. And maybe that's just my perception. Very quickly from the both of you, what, what are the next steps we have to take to improve the cybersecurity of, the, uh, of America's industrial base and its defense industrial base in particular? This takes us back to where we started with good old uh, Log4j, which is we have uh, uh, software that isn't, uh, it's either old or it was, you know, there's, there's some fundamental coding errors. Um, and CMMC, the executive order, they're all pushing in the direction that this is no longer, you know, stuff you do at night in your basement. It's, it's, a, it's a mature industry that needs uh, certifiable products. The dilemma, of course, is um, o- the overburden. And CMMC, I think, uh, a little too much compliance. But we're, we're moving in the direction of making this uh, uh, a safer product software to have better coding. It'll take a while, but I think that's that's what CMMC is a useful step. I worry about the burden in in both the CMMC and other stuff. You know, you don't want to you don't want to have companies go through uh, a 
long, expensive review process. Mike, last word. So for me, CMMC is representative of a continual government challenge. We are great at, the government is great. And I was part of it, proud to be part of it for you know 37 years. The government is great at promulgating requirements. Where the government tends to be weak is follow through and extended focus. And then working with organizations in the actual implementation of the regulations that we mandate. We love rolling out programs and creating new requirements. And then eight months, 12 months later, we forget all about it and we're on to whatever the next thing is we want to roll out. We have, remember, cybersecurity to me is about sustained effort over time. It's about building on fundamentals. And that has not to date been a kind of core characteristic of government effort. And I was part of those efforts myself. So I'm not trying to say government's all inherently bad, but its strength to date has not been sustained effort, sustained focus, and a follow-on commitment of resources over time and actually assisting entities in executing the regulations and requirements that the government imp or imposes. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, absolutely great discussion. I hope uh, that it helps shape a better uh, 2022 uh, for all of us. Uh, thanks so much to the both of you for being so generous with your time over the course of this last year. Really, really appreciate it. Uh, hope you have a, a great holiday, a Merry Christmas, uh, and a, a very, very happy new year, and wishing you both a very happy, healthy, and prosperous 2022. Uh, and look forward to starting the year with a bang by having both of you back on again soon. Thanks so very much. From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit northropgrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.